From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. As an enthusiastic eight-year-old boy selling phantom bulls down in the shed to now being known as a leading auctioneer in Australia's stud market, Wayne York holds the title of being the youngest to win the Australian National Young Auctioneering Competition at the age of 20. Wayne's eye for cattle and passion for the success of a sale has certainly earned the respect of vendors and buyers. Throughout this interview, Wayne and Caitlin break down what it takes to do what he does. The pressure, the skill and the ability. The power of Wayne's mind is intriguing. To be able to do so many things at once. For every lot he's selling, he's reading the crowd, he's watching the bull, articulating the facts and figures on him and he's recognising what each interested bidder may be looking to gain out of this purchase. Within moments, even seconds, he has the power to alter the sale. From the saddle. From the saddle. Good morning, Wayne York. Thank you very much for joining us here at From the Saddle Podcast. Mate, you're a bit of a an exception to our guest list this time. Um, you know, you're not widely known in the horse network, but you are in the stud cattle world and, and the cattle industry as a whole. So we do look forward to discovering a little bit more about Wayne York. So thank you for joining us. No worries at all, Caitlin. It's um, it'll be a pleasure. Now, Wayne, Let's get started, mate. You've got a wife and a family, and you've got your own um, cattle operation that that you guys run. Where is home right now? So yeah, now we um, I've got a wife and three children, two boys and a little girl, and we live approximately twenty k's sort of southeast of Emerald on our home property, Pencara. So I've been sort of around the Emerald area now. Uh, upwards of sort of 12 to 15 years, I suppose. And yeah, we bought Pankara, I think it was three years ago, roughly. And that was our first property that we purchased. And um, and yeah, we call here home. So mate, you are well known as an auctioneer in the industry. Is that something that you sort of do just on the side? Where, like where does your, your heart and passion sort of lie? Is it more breeding cattle or is it more the auctioneering side of things? Probably to answer that, Caitlin, is a, is a bit of both. Like, I, I guess I see myself now more as a cattle person and a, and a grazier and we breed stud bulls ourselves. So I probably see that as our main, you know, that is my general day-to-day part of my life. But the auctioneering part, it's been something that I've always wanted to do. And I love the thrill of, of being at an auction when it's done well. And, you know, I guess that's what's created me going into the auctioneering side of the business and and it's sort of created its own growth period over the last sort of 10 years doing what I'm doing with the bit of contract auctioneering on the side. So what exactly got you into it, mate? Like go back 10, 15 years, where did it all start? Well, it probably started as a, when I was a kid, really. I grew up basically on a property around Wondowan and I've got an older brother and a younger brother and mum and dad had stud cattle and I used to love going to bull sales. You know, we'd go to the bull sales and after the sales, we'd get all the catalogues that weren't filled out and we'd take them home. And, you know, I still have fond memories of going down to the, the big shed with my brothers and we'd sit up on the round bales of hay in the shed and, you know, we'd have the old catalogues. And 
I'd auction off a few and then my brother would auction off a few and we'd create our own, you know, have our own game <laughs> sort of thing. So that was probably back, you know, when we were sort of seven or eight or nine years old, I guess. And I think I just liked going to bull sales and seeing the auctioneers uh, front and centre and I guess it just appealed to me and I thought, oh, one day that would be good to do, you know. So that's sort of where auctioneering started for me and then I left school, St. Brennan's in Yapuna, finished grade 12 there and then went to started a traineeship with elders in Mara under Peter Ryan, who was um, my manager then. So I did that with him for sort of 12 years, uh, not 12 years, um, for about 12 months, sorry. And then I was able to get a livestock role in Theodore as the, the livestock agent there, so under elders, and worked there for a few years. And then sort of because we were at, you know, with the Mara sales, we used to hold it fortnightly then and you know, I started by selling a few of the cull bulls and, yeah, just sort of grew from there, really. So at that point in time, did you see those positions that you were in as a stepping stone? Is that where your mind was at with it or did you think that was the career you wanted to go down that livestock agent path? Yeah, I guess my aim was always going into an agency business was to become a stud stock auctioneer, mm-hmm. basically. You know, that was my end goal right from the get-go because I just had you know, always had a passion for seed stock and I just saw that was the pinnacle of the auctioneering game. The livestock industry was in that seed stock department. So that's where I put my focus to get to. Like anything, mate, you got to crawl before you walk. What exactly did you have to do in the early days to get a start in it, I guess? Well, I guess I was very, I was very lucky that, you know, working for Peter Ryan and also Tommy Cuskelly was there then. As young, I was only sort of 17 straight out of school and they were, both of them had such a big impact on my life in general, you know, just, just from the way they handled business and who they were. Like, like I guess Peter Ryan was, I probably never told him this, but he was the best boss that I've ever had by tenfold. You know, we could get on the same level. He was able to give you enough rain, but also was very strict in making sure that you did your job. And if you did your job, you were right. But he was also very supportive of knowing where I wanted to get to into trying to help me get into positions that that enabled me to get closer to that as fast as I could, I guess. So those sorts of things helped me get to those positions. And I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of people like stud breeders in their own right that have really backed me, I suppose, through learning to auctioneer, to winning some awards, to going out on my own, just doing contract auctioneering and have supported me that whole time and having belief in what I do. And so I do owe a lot to those people that have pretty much stuck by me and been there the whole time, really. So what were the opportunities back then that you could grab a hold of to better yourself in as an auctioneer? Like, was it the competitions? What was available to you back then to be able to do that? Um, yeah, well, I suppose, you know, and a lot of people probably have heard of the, you know, the young auctioneer competitions that run around Australia, really. So I guess that was the first stepping stone. And I saw that as, you know, being a, a young agent at that time, to get to where I wanted to do the the steps that I needed to get there, I needed to be able to compete and, and compete competitively and be on a stage where people could see that I could do it. And, you know, I was very fortunate I was able to compete at the ECA and um, I won the Queensland Young Auctioneers competition and that was in 2004 and then I went on to the following year in 2005 and 
won the national competition in Sydney. So that was where you could go in Australia. I was very, very, very lucky, and um, and I'm very proud of the fact that I can say that I'm still the youngest person to ever win the national young auctioneers competition at the age of 20. From winning that competition, that enabled me to. I went over and competed at the Calgary Stampede in the international competition over there, which is a bit of a mind blower for you. It's such a total different field, total different level, and you just can get so many experiences if you're willing to to soak in the information, really. So what exactly made it different? Paint me a picture here. What was it that blew your mind over there? Just the the professionalism that, you know, the Canadians and the Americans, their professionalism in how they conduct their auctions, how they actually do the selling and their articulation in their words and their rhythm. You know, it, it, they sell so differently to most people in Australia that, you know, it, it sounds totally different, but they've got a way about them and how they present themselves. It's very, just very professionally done. And I guess I took a lot of that out of what they do when they do their auctions. Whether I've been able to replicate that here, not necessarily, but I've been able to take parts out of what they do and hopefully I implement some of that in the sales that I do over here. The Americans and Canadians have a lot of pride. So yeah, I, I understand what you're sort of saying there. Yeah, like they're just very clinical in how they present themselves. You know, they don't like things being sloppy. It's got to be all in line, the right time. And, you know, like a lot of different industries, it's the level of professionalism, the better you can do it, the hopefully better the outcome. And they seem to do it a lot better than what we did at that stage. And yeah, so I took a lot out of going over there. So at 20, like 20, 21 years of age, being over there, what other ages were you competing against or networking with? Was it the same? No, so they their competitions over there is, is an open age. So there was people down to, say, like 25 or 6 years of age was the other youngest um, ones, and then they ranged right up to the age of 60, basically. And I'd say a lot of, a lot of them were probably in that early 40, 40 to 50 age bracket mm-hmm. when I competed over there. So yeah, I was definitely the um, the baby of the the group when I was over there. I arrived over there and I was twenty, and I couldn't have a beer over the bar because they have a twenty one age <laughs> limit. So, but I turned twenty one over there, so it was um, a pretty cool experience as well. Absolutely. So, being the baby of the group, did they mentor you? Did they sort of take you under their wing, or were you, I don't know, like excluded to a degree as well? Uh, they were they were really probably good. I was, um, I guess, I was probably a bit overwhelmed, and you know, I was probably fairly sh- like I, I believe like I was relatively shy, and I to a degree I, I'm a little bit still that way. in, in cases where if I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone, I, I tend to just more stick to myself. So I probably little stuck to myself a little bit. If I went back now, I'd be totally different. But um, they were very good in wanting to have yarn and help me through the process and. That all said, oh, come on, Aussie, you get with me. We'll go over here and help. And <laughs> you know, they just, yeah, they, they were very accommodating, and they loved hearing the Aussies because we, you know, have such a slang to our voice. They just loved hearing us sell because we say in Australia we say numbers differently from thirteen to you know eighteen and all those sorts of things where that they really pronounce them, so they sound totally different as they say them. But yeah, they could just listen to us talk, and and especially with us having a go at auctioneering, they just. Love the thought process of us um, doing it, really. 
On the pronunciation and the articulation, that would have to be a massive part in what you do. So at 20 years of age, when you were over there, did you sort of think, holy crap, we actually do not pronounce our words properly? Did you have to change how how you spoke? Did you have to do certain exercises? Yeah, I would say I, I could notice the difference, probably more so after being there for three or four weeks and then getting back on a Qantas flight to fly back to Australia <laughs> and the hostesses <laughs> start talking and you go, oh, my God, we sound like bogans. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> you um you go well real we really do talk with a slang in Australia you know yeah. we always cut our words short yeah. we don't pronounce everything properly whether we're always in too big of a hurry so we don't say the words properly but you you definitely notice the difference when you get back on the plane or I did and yeah to go back to the auctioneering side of things that articulation in the words I guess I even train myself now constantly that once I get my game face on to do the auction. I actually have to speak differently to what I do on a general day-to-day basis. Yeah. Just to make that clarity in the words and the articulation and the words come clear through a microphone out to a crowd. Yeah, I absolutely understand. I know that in the off-season from, you know, doing the podcast, I get really lazy with pronunciation and I do not understand until I land back in front of a microphone, I think, oh my God, I got lazy. So you do have to talk differently and be very conscious of, yeah, the articulation and and just saying words right, like even Australia instead of Australia. Exactly. So it's one of those things like, yeah, I, I do a lot of practice to, you know, for my auctioneering to keep up. Like I do a few sales a year where I go and do their auctions, but you know, if I'm doing a, a water run or something, I jump on the bike and go for a zip around the paddock. Like a lot of times I don't have a radio, so I sit there and basically talk or I auctioneer to myself. And if there's a word or a letter that I want to try and say it clearer and faster, like I'll just practice doing that for an hour and a half as I go around the paddock to get that to, to the stage where I get to where I'm like, I'm happy with that. I'm starting to, it's becoming more of a natural thing, just like training for us. You know, if you're a footy player, training to kick the ball on a certain side of your foot or something like that, if, the more you do it, the more you practice it, the more chances are, the better are you going to be at that. So that's how I look at, look at it, yeah. When you're in that mindset and you're, you know, repeating that word or that phrase over and over again, do you ever get to the point you think, friggin' hell, am I saying it wrong? Like, does it start to sound wrong? Oh, not necessarily. I guess I guess I just I'm, I'm pretty a de- determined person, so I just I guess try and find a way to make that sound how I want it to sound. I guess yeah. Like sometimes you know I feel a bit stupid in how I have to move my mouth to to say an actual actual word or a rhythm or a number or something, but I keep doing it until I can get there. I guess is is what I try and do. So in Canada, what did you actually have to auction off? Oh, we auctioned off just pens of cattle. So it was just at a, a livestock market just out of Calgary. And yeah, we sold similar to what we do here at the competitions. We sold three or four pens of cattle and um, we got a lot of help to understand what their market is and what their prices are and that sort of stuff. But the buyers also knew that we come from the land down under and we had no idea of where this market was going to be. So they were pretty helpful of you know making sure that things didn't all unravel on us, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So did you have to do your homework? Oh, it was a little bit different to uh, in Australia, I guess. Like, um, you know, the competition, you'd go out the back, look at the pens of cattle you were going to sell, 
you'd be given a weight, what breed they were, who owned them, you know. So one, once you knew that, you know, you knew the animals or your product you were selling and then it was just understanding where their values were to where those cattle would probably be and go on from there. So I probably do more homework now when I do a bull sale in Australia, just understanding, you know, in Australia we understand pedigrees and, you know, scans and EBVs and genetics and, and a whole different range of things that can make a difference to a bull making 100,000 to 10,000 sort of thing. So I probably wasn't in the level over there to understand that whole marketplace over there, but we had to do enough research so we didn't, you know, you didn't want to look like a fool because you want to do as best job you could. So you studied what you could and and they were very accommodating of helping us out to make sure that, you know, we had the information that we needed to be able to do it properly. So Wayne, when you came back over to Australia after being in Canada, you would have had the bug then. You would have been sort of you know, what's the next thing that I, I can do to to keep stepping this up? Did you feel like that or did you sort of just keep riding the way? No, I, um, you know, I guess I sort of looked at it and thought, you know, it was a great experience and I always believe you should never stop learning or everyone's got that does a bit of auctioneering. There's some things that you can pick from anybody that you mightn't be doing and try and implement that in your own patter, I guess, to try and make yourself better. Mm -hmm. But yeah, coming back from Canada, I probably thought, if anything, that I probably needed to make sure that I, the things that I wanted to perfect and get better at, that I actually did and not just rely on, oh, I won an award and and that's going to carry me through because it's only award, you know, that's only the judges on the day that that decided that was going to be the case. So I guess I always looked at it to be well recognised a couple of judges don't tell the world. You need the general population to um, consider you that you're good at it to, for people to go, yeah, well, he's he's up there and in, in one of the better ones in the country, you know. So just every step I took from there was to fine-tune, make myself better. If I saw somebody doing something that I thought, well, that was good, well, I'd try to not necessarily sound like them but utilise some of their things that they did just to generally improve. And I still do that now to try and – every year just get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. Did you have a mentor or an idol in those early years? Probably the person that, especially in the like selling stud stock, the person that I, I guess I based a lot of my original pattern stuff around was Steve Hartwig. He was like the leading auctioneer for elders at that time and he just had such good rhythm. He could read a crowd really well. You know, so I guess I based myself a little bit on, on what he would do and then I've just tried to implement things from so many other people to um, create my own sound and my own um, pattern now but he was probably the the original start when I was only really learning to get into stud stock selling. He was the benchmark so if you're going to beat better than someone you want to try and see what the benchmark is and, and get to that level I guess. Mate at what point throughout this career did you sort of think I'm where I'd like to be? I'm auctioning the level of bulls I've always wanted to auction off. At what point was that? Yeah, well, I guess I, I haven't, you know, I'm very lucky now. You know, I went into Studstock with Elders and I worked there doing bull sales for them for a couple of years. And then I left and I actually went underground mining for nearly eight years. And that's where I guess what I do now is in contract auctioneering came about because as I left Elders, I had a, a few people that come to me and said, oh, we will still want you to sell at the sale. and you know, do you think you can make it work? And because I loved auctioneering, I never thought much of it. I just, originally, I just thought, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. It keeps my hand in, in the game, you know. So it started off with doing a couple the first year and, you know, it's just gradually, slowly growing over time to where we are now. We're, like, I think this year we'll probably do about 18 or 19 sales over a course of 12-month period. To explain if I'm where I want it with the calibre of the cattle I sell, I'm very lucky that a lot of very successful seed stock people get me and utilise me to come and an auctioneer at their sale. For whatever reason that is, they obviously see that there's value in it for them and I I always believe that a good auctioneer can make a big difference in the, in a sale result. But, you know, I'm, I've been very lucky to sell a lot of deer price bulls, but, you know, selling a, a high price bull, that's terrific. But really what gives me the kick is that why I love it so much is you know, I see how much effort goes into getting those bulls into that selling ring. You know, I guess it gives me a bit of an advantage in a way because I am a, a general bull breeder. You know, I stand on the same ground they do and I understand those vet bills and those, same, you know, all the costs that comes in, the preparation, the catalogue costs, the advertising. So I see all that and I know that when times are tough, the last thing we want to do is have bulls passed in or no bid. And if we can get more money for a bull, well, we need to work to try and get that money. Just because there's no no worse feeling than walking out the back after your sale and looking at and going, well, I've still got ten bulls left. So I guess I I do whatever I can if I'm auctioneering to try and keep momentum in a sale and keep the sale bouncing along to try and avoid whatever I can to try and have those bulls that we don't pass in. Really, what's that pressure like? Oh, uh, I guess I don't I don't really see it as pressure, Caitlin. To be honest. You know, I guess I, like every now and then I get a little bit nervous before I start a sale. But once I sort of just screen over and kick in the gear and the auctioneering phase comes on and then I'm in the zone, if that makes sense. So all I'm thinking about is creating an atmosphere, creating momentum, keeping an eye on understanding what people are bidding, what they're looking for, being very conscious to know that, okay, this certain person over here on the right-hand side of the arena, he's buying this type of bull. So the next time one of those comes in, I'm looking in that direction, waiting to see if this person is going to operate. So I'm trying to read a lot of things to to get a feeling of, of what's going on. So the pressure, I, I don't necessarily feel the pressure. I probably feel the pressure if the sale's finished and it's been a subdued sale, you know. But my, my whole perspective of it is I want to try and take the pressure away from the vendor on that day. You know, they've got enough things to worry about, let alone trying to worry about whether their auctioneer is going to turn up and do the job correctly. So my whole aim is that I can turn up, the vendors are comfortable, they know that I turn up and do my job, I've done my homework, I understand their program and understand what they want to get out of the sale and what it means to them and then I guess they leave me do it and I um, get up there and give it 100% to make sure we get the result as good as possible. Connected to rural communities and farming families, the team at Hewitt Consulting have a unique understanding and ever-growing portfolio of rural digital and marketing designs. The most reputable marketing and design business in rural Australia. And a few sneaky ones overseas. Logo designs, bull sale catalogues, marketing material, custom trucker caps and merchandise, horse adverts and a whole lot more. Caitlin and Robin understand that each project is as unique as the business it's for. Contact them today. 
www.hewittconsultingco.com.au. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. Well, and you just mentioned that, yes, you have knocked the gavel down on on a lot of high-priced bulls. Mate, talk me through that because I have been at a sale and I've watched you do this and, and I guess I look at things a little bit differently to others. But one thing I did notice is that when you're auctioneering and there's a $200,000 price tag and the bids are still going, you've got a lot going on in those few moments. You're Like you said, you're reading the crowd, you're reading the bidders, you've got the ball in front of you, you're watching that and you're actually, there's a lot going on. At what point do you drop the bids? You know, talk me through this, paint me a picture of, of that moment. Um, well, I guess uh, you, if you're selling bulls up in that figure, you, you've obviously dealing with people that are very committed to their breeding program and, and they're willing to invest that sort of money into genetics and into that particular animal. So, you know, I guess to get to that stage anyway, we're dealing with a very quality beast. Mm-hmm. But to say it basically, you know, I'll be reading the crowd will be, you know, at a price. So a big thing for me will be seeing who's actually bidding, for example. So, you know, there could be two or three parties still actively bidding and understanding, you know, if the bull himself is a big strong-headed bull and a big hindquarter or a big bone or something like that, and I know those people in the crowd and I know that, that they might be looking for that bull with a big head and, and big bone or something. So I'll, I guess I'll try and utilise my knowledge of not only that what the bull is, but also the knowledge of what the purchaser in the stand has at home, what they're probably trying to achieve by buying this bull. So I guess I try and reach into the inner of them and I try and pull at the strings that is going to make them have another bit, I guess. So if they're, they've got a herd and they're looking for a really strong head, well, I'll emphasise, like, this is the bull that can make your herd. It'll lift the heads, you know. This bull will give you that extra bone in those progeny or whatever to that degree. Mm. So it's, I guess that's where me reading the people in the crowd is as much as a skill as, as knowing whether that's a good bull or not, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's sort of probably the basics of it. Like, I really like drawing, you know, contact to people in the crowd. You know, it sounds a bit bad, but, like, it's the the thrill of the kill, if that makes sense. Caitlin, like, you know, if we've got a bull and he's selling and selling and selling and I can work and I can just slow down a little bit and just tweak what I do and just emphasise a few points and for whatever it is and I can get them to have another bid, well, good, I'm like, bang, I've got another bid, I've won that one, right? Oh, it's your turn over here. It's your turn to have another bid now. So I, then I turn on to that person. He might be looking for a total different option, but then I start, you know, it's 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 hard to explain, but it's... You're the salesman. At the end of the day, you're the salesman. You've got the product in front of you. That's exactly right. So we're just trying to tweak everything we can to get those extra bids out of people, yeah. An auctioneer will make or break a sale. Like you said, it it does actually impact the sale. Yeah, very much so, I believe. So once you, you know, lock down a $280,000 ball, whatever, I watched you at that sale. You actually have to regain the crowd then. Everyone's head sort of goes a bit, you know, they're off. They're like, holy crap, what happened just there? That escalated quickly. What a-. But you then have to move on to the next ball within, you know, a matter of moments. So you actually have to draw that crowd back in. How do you do that? Um, it can be difficult at times, I guess. The benefit of a lot of sales I do 
you know, it's the same vendor that, you know, you're not going to sell just one bull for somebody for big money and then they change vendors. So by having the next bull that comes in afterwards, I guess the the biggest thing is is in having control of the auction and you want to try and minimise people turning to their person that's sitting beside them and having a chat and discussing, geez, that was a good bull, he made a lot of money, da-da-da-da-da. You want the general people to sit back, take notice of what's coming next. So however you do that, and I'm sure a lot of people have different um, ways to do that, I guess I don't really have any specific tools that I use. I just I read how it is and sometimes I'll bang me little stick or sometimes I'll pause or I'll try and get a bit louder or a bit slower or do something a little bit different so people go, what was that? Hang on. And then hopefully engage their thought process back into the selling ring to look on what's going on. Wayne, what are some of the factors that can actually throw a sale, like the weather, the location, online bids, if the reception or the quality is poor? Do these all contribute to the success of a sale? Oh, very much so. The more times you can get your ducks lined up, the the better, obviously. Obviously, you can't change the weather. You know, it could be a roaring drought, so that's going to have an impact. It might have rained 200 mil the night before and creeks are up and you're struggling to get people into inspectables, so that's going to have an impact. You know, when it comes to the online thing, yes, it can have a have an impact if the reception is poorly, but it's very hard to judge that or manage that in a way. So... I guess what I look at it is that regardless of the situation, you've got to be always on the positive front foot. So it's not about worrying about what problems we've got. It's about fixing those problems and finding a solution to make sure that we can minimise the impact of any of those scenarios on the day, basically. So before we mentioned, you know, when you were explaining your position up there when you're selling and, and effectively that you're the salesman, as a salesman, People can either, you know, take what you say with a grain of salt or they can actually respect your opinion and what you value in in the product in front of you, whatever that might be. Do you believe that developing the respect from the bidders is important and, and a knack that you've got because you're you're a cattleman and you've got that eye for cattle. So when you actually say, you know, we've got a good bull here, look at the bone and the depth people actually prick their ears and go, well, hang on, we need to pay attention to this, as opposed to, oh, yeah, another salesman's pitch? Yeah, I think that is, um, it's building a rapport with people and, and just a relationship in general. I'd like to think people see me as being very honest and I, just, I don't just go through the motions of saying, he's a good bull, he's long. Every, every bull that comes in, oh, he's a big heavy bull and he's long, or he's a big heavy bull and he's long. Because if you say, it's just repetitive. If you say it a thousand times, you know, people don't take any notice of it. Do you know what I mean? So I guess I try and pick my mark of where I want to say those things that can make a difference. And I guess being a contract auctioneer, being independent, it gives me the ability to, I guess, be, be very authentic, where they see me as... I'm a grazier like them. I'm a farmer like them. I breed bulls like them. So I deal with the same stuff they're dealing with on a common ground, but I do a bit of auctioneering on the side. So I feel that I probably get a little bit of better respect. I probably get a little bit more because because I'm not, say, an agent or a salesperson in, in such, they see me as a bloke that just gets up and auctioneers. So I feel that I get put in probably a different light to what the likes of an agent would, if that makes sense. And I guess there's a bit of background from owning cattle and country and doing it myself. 
also probably helps helps that factor. I do think, though, that rural people are big believers in respect is earned, not given, and obviously you have earned that respect as well. I'd like to think so, Caitlin. You know, um, you know, regardless of, you know, I sell numerous different breeds for people. I sell totally different types of cattle within the same breed for people. It's more about understanding what, for me, the the vendor wants from their day and what their program is and what their clientele is. And me respecting that this is their big day. This is the day that's going to pay their interest bill. This is the day that's going to pay for their kids' boarding school fees. This is the day that's going to pay to put food on the table. Like, Because majority of the time, this is their big earning day for the year. So I want to make sure that I get the best result I can for them on that day and leave no stone unturned to get them a result. I guess it's it's how you know whether whether how I carry myself or or how I present myself that I like to think people have respect for me. I try and show them respect in in what they have and and also the buyers that I respect them in what they do part of the sale. So yeah, it's it's I'd like to think you know one day that people go oh that Wayne York you know he was just a good bloke. You know it's obviously great if people recognise me from an auctioneering or cattle or whatever, but First and foremost, I'd love people to sit there and say, "Well, that Yorkie, he's just a he's just a good fella. He's he's just a good bloke to talk to, or something." You know that that's how I'd like my um obituary to be, rather than, "Oh, he was the best auctioneer you'd ever seen," or or whatever. You know, like does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, it does. So, Wayne, the auctioneering space is predominantly male orientated. Do you think this will change in the future, or do you think that there's a reason for this? Oh, uh, it's a pretty hard question, this one, Caitlin, because. I guess at the moment it is very male dominant, and I guess you got to look at the two differences: whether it's auctioneering or whether that. And there's an agent part to a part that I don't do anymore. But most people find their feet into auctioneering through the agency side. More ladies are finding their way into the agency side of things. You know, it's it's hard to put a timeline on it. Whether there'll be a big change within the next ten years because our industry is always changing, it's hard to know. Whether it'll take fifty years until there's more ladies getting up there and um, auctioneering. But I guess is it, if a, a young lady or whoever is very committed, they want to do it and they work really hard at it, I can't see any reason why they can't be up there selling like any male counterpart. So you have cattle of your own. What breeds do you have in, you know, stud or commercial? Or what does Wayne do on a day-to-day basis when he's not auctioneering? Yeah, well, we sort of... We run two studs, so we have a um, Simmental stud and a Droughtmaster stud. So that's the nuts and guts of our operation, I guess. We breed approximately about 120 or 30 Simmental bulls a year and about 50 or 60 Droughtmasters. And then we also have a small commercial herd at present. So that's the day-to-day basis of um, is the day-to-day running, really. Do you have your own bull sale? Yeah, we do with our Simmentels. So we have our own uh, Simmentel sale in Emerald every year. So we sell about 70 bulls is what we'll basically sell this year. We, yeah, we try and keep the best for, for the sale and we just market them through our own sale in Emerald. And then with our drought masters, we take them to a couple of sales in central Queensland and also down to a sale in Roma. So how does it feel to be in the crowd as opposed to up in the auctioneer's box and someone's auctioneering your cattle off? Oh, it's um, – I guess there's times where I, I sit there and um, 
I'll be in the ring and chasing a bull around. And it's very still hard to turn the auctioneering part of my brain off, I guess. I'll sit there and my eyes will just wander and watch the crowd and watch the crowd. And I always say to Ingrid, like, oh, I've got to stop like trying not to watch the crowd. But it's just, I guess, it's instinct is what makes me do it, I guess. But in saying that, I guess there's also enough other pressures going on that day from having our own bull sale that I have to have trust into the people that I've got operating and up there on the rostrum doing the job for me. So, yeah, I, I try and take myself out of that predicament as much as possible where I try not to, to have any impact in what, what happens, you know? Yeah, yeah. So moving forward, what struggles do you see the industry facing? Do you see the sales and auctions altering? I mean, you know, look at COVID. It did change how we sell and market to a degree. A lot of people are now content to bid online without seeing the animal in flesh as opposed to, you know, five years ago. How do you see this changing and evolving? Well, I think we're in, a, we're in an industry that changes and evolves often, Caitlin, I guess. You know, the online platform type thing. You know, our industry is always evolving and changing. You know, we wind the clock back six or seven years and the likes of the online platforms, they were hardly even part of, of a bull sale, really. Um, where now, I would say at 90% of sales probably have some sort of online platform operating. You know, you'd have bull sale catalogues and now you get online and there's a photo of every lot and a video of every lot in a lot of sales. So times have changed and COVID, you know, three years ago, it was a big kicker to get that happening because people still needed to be able to operate. They weren't allowed to go anywhere or they weren't allowed to cross a border. So the only way they could get their bulls in front of people was put a video out there and put more photos out there. So I guess it probably sped the process up of us evolving and getting better at promotion and marketing really because uh, we can put a video up and it can go across the world Mm. and someone in South Africa can see that animal, you know. So it's definitely changed. Where it can go from here, I don't know. I get asked a lot whether this, you know, we'll get to the stage where, you know, the bulls will be out the back and we just run on a big TV screen and people watch the TV screen and the auctioneer does his thing and goes from there. I know it already happens down a lot in the south. They're moving probably towards that a little bit. But I'm as an auctioneer, I'm not totally convinced it's the best way to go. I don't think it's a bad idea, but you know, as a as an auctioneer, I, I want to be able to see that animal in the ring for me. You know, your general run of bulls fine. You could probably sell through a video. But if I've got a bull and we're at 120 or 40,000 and one of the bidders they went in there with $100,000 and they're already $40,000 over their budget. I guess for me, I feel that it'd be very hard to convince that person to have another bid by watching a TV screen that they've probably already watched, the same video that they've probably already watched 50 times mm. compared to that bull standing in the ring, standing up. You know, you can see that bull if he's got skin. You could see that bull that he's got broad in the muzzle or big hooded eyes or, or a big hindquarter or whatever it is. If it's right in front of you, you can't not see it, if that makes sense, where if it's on a TV screen, you're only seeing what you've seen before and you're only relying on your memory to give you the, the confidence, you know, where I feel if that was in the ring, I as an auctioneer have more a chance of getting more money out of that person with that bull standing in front of them. It'd be like going to, you know, we can all sit sit at home and watch the State of Origin at Suncorp, but there's nothing like being there. 
Well, it's it's interesting. So last year we did a bit of a trial with one of our catalogues that we work on and we put QR codes. So QR codes aren't foreign to us anymore. We're, we're all very familiar with QR codes. However, for each lot in the catalogue, we actually put a QR code and that QR code took them to the video of the bull. Yeah. So the vendor's idea was that people would sit in the ring, the sale ring, and they'd, you know, look at the ball, but they'd actually scan this QR code to watch the video. Now, I actually tracked the number of watches on all of these QR codes, and I'll tell you now, I think only six were viewed out of a hundred and something lots, and the highest number of views that a QR code had, I think, was three or something, and none were viewed throughout the sale. So that tells me that we actually aren't ready for that just yet. You know, like you said, there is nothing better than actually being there in the flesh. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a touch-feel thing, I guess. Mm. Um, That's how I look at it. And, you know, I I, I don't think, you know, I'm not saying that a little never change, but I know for myself, I just feel that there's the ability to get more money out of somebody will occur with a bull standing in the ring than not having him in there at all, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, you know, to tap into our senses are a big sale like pitch. You know, if we can see, smell, touch or feel something where we intend to get a bit overexcited and probably, you know, buy quicker than we normally would if we couldn't or do you know what I mean? Like, so that has to come into play in the souring as well. Yeah, so I guess... Each to their own of, of how they want to con- people want to conduct their sale, I guess. You know, and I understand as a bull breeder, by not having to put the bull in the situation of them going into a ring, it takes the stress off the animal. All those sort of things are all all positive for the animal, I guess. But as an auctioneer, I just feel that without that bull in the ring, we could be missing something. And it, it's just harder to sell a picture than it is to sell the real deal standing there. So I guess that's just how I look at it, really. Wayne, as a 17-year-old going into this industry, what would your advice be to yourself looking back? Um, I guess I'd probably just take as much in as I could, really. I probably wouldn't change a lot of things because I guess I was so driven to be an auctioneer and be a seed stock auctioneer. I guess I was very focused on that. So a lot of the time I was always taking notice of, of other auctioneers or other people and of what they did and their mannerisms and things like that. And I w- probably wouldn't change too much, but I just, I guess I would probably just take the time a little bit more. Um, I think I always was in too big of a hurry and that's just me in general with a lot of things. But yeah, just by taking the time and just seeing perspectives from different angles and, and understanding. And I think that comes a lot with just maturity and age a bit too, do you know what I mean? But, you know, you can learn a lot from just, people in general, you know, from bull breeders. I do a a sale that I literally have gone to every sale that they've had since I was the age of 17. And, you know, I was very lucky that at an early age that they put their foot down and they knew that I wanted to get into stud stock and they were very supportive and they said, no, well, we want Wayne York to have a sell. And that's sort of where my career started with basically, you know, from vendors basically saying, no, we want to give the young fella a go and starting from there. So I was very lucky that way. If I was to say to any young person coming through, I would say, don't push it. 
do the thing, be respectful, because if the vendors are generally wanting to support you, they will. They would much rather give a young person a go than have an older person that's been doing it for years. If they've got the opportunity, they'll be quite happy for a young person to have a go because everyone likes seeing young people succeed and, and success. And by just being part of getting to know the vendors of, of the sales that you like to be involved in. And not everyone, start, you, you never start at the top. You're never going to sell the, the first 20 bulls of a catalogue being the green young fella that starts up. Do you know what I mean? You always start at the bottom. So you start at the bottom and you put in 120%. And that eventually, if you do your job well enough, you'll end up being at the front end of the catalogue selling the best 20 bulls, if that makes sense. Did you ever have a moment throughout your career that defined your career? Like, is it the moment you sold, you know, the top price ball for the very first time? No, I, I wouldn't say that there was a moment. I've had a lot of good moments, I guess. You know, I got to sell NCC Justified for 325000 you know, um, which was a record price. So I've been able to be involved in a in a Glenland sale there when they first went on, on property and they topped at $180,000, which was a new breed record. And mm. I've been able to do a few things like that that are, you know, on paper and you look at numbers and you look at figures, they're, they're an outstanding result. But I probably feel there's just as many good things on just a normal, like a normal type sale that is something that you put in and you remember those moments. Like for an example, I can, last year I sold a, a Brangus bull for a, a young couple and they're just a battler. They don't breed a lot of bulls. You know, they're not big time in any way. They're just good, genuine, hardworking young couple. They breed a few bulls because they like mucking around with and they got dogs and horses. And we sold a bull for them for 85000 And for me, I think of selling that bull and from about fifty-five or $60,000, that bull was basically done. Do you know what I mean? The, the people had it, had enough of bidding. You know, they thought that's as far as we we're going to go. And I guess I felt that I had an input into, like I talked about earlier, convincing those people that this bull's got great skin and this bull has a great head. It's just what you need. And they bid again and then turn to the next person and the other, the bidder, and convince them that this is the bull that they need for their herd. And we got the bull to 85,000 and I was so happy for in general, just for the, the couple because we got that bull to a high price well above their ever expectations and, um, you know, you could just see how ecstatic they were that they were able to breed a bull and that made that sort of money. So th there's the sort of things, yeah, I guess as an auction, it makes me feel good just as much as turning up at a sale and creating some momentum and creating a good feel and people are enjoying being at the auction and, and they just like enjoy the day and, and next thing you know, you get a good result for the vendor. You know, it doesn't have to be anything outstanding, but the result shows that it was a good day. So yeah, there's, there's many aspects of, there's no pinpoint moment that changed it for me in my career, but there's numerous little things and, and sales that have made an impact in, in wanting me to continue to try and get better and be more skillful at what I do to make the best result happen for the people selling the animals, really. Yeah. So the small wins count just as much as the big wins for you personally yeah, to remind you why you're in very, it. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. One final question, Wayne, and we'll let you go. Exactly how does one prepare their vocals to withstand the pressure of auctioneering for such a long period of time? 
Uh, well, it's. I think everyone's got a little bit of a difference. Like probably going out and having a big all night bender is probably not the ideal <laughs> thing to do for it. But you know, I, I probably try and just the day before I always try and probably make sure that I drink plenty of water. Yep. Just to stay hydrated. I don't have any set rules. I you know I know some people go a little salty water or drink a little mixture, you know, concoction or suck on, you know, strepsils or whatever it is. You know, everyone's got their own little thing. But for me, it's more just keep as much water as I can. Yeah, and basically, you know, sometimes I might have a beer or two the night before, but I never go silly because it's people's livelihood. So you want to be make sure that the day you turn up, you're, you're on your A game when you're front up there. So to look after me throat, I just, yeah, water and and that's probably the, the key ingredient for me. <laughs> very good, very good. All right, well, thank you, Wayne. We will let you go. And congratulations on, on your career so far, and I'm sure there's many more moments to come for you. No, thanks, Caitlin. And, um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to to have a chat. And probably, if anything, I thank all the people that have shown faith in me to be able to, to have a career in it because I thoroughly do love it and I hope I can make a difference for them, really. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications.